Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with speaker and activist AJ Johnson. AJ Johnson is an atheist speaker and activist. She was featured in both the book and film versions of A Better Life. She has recently taken a bit of a break from organized atheism to focus on her education, first studying in Scotland and now in a PhD program in Chicago. I asked her about a clip from A Better Life, the film, where she says, So every time I get on a plane and there's lots of turbulence uh, and you have that moment where you're like, is this where I'm going to go? I always take the moment to, not to pray, but to think back on all of the great sunsets and sunrises and beautiful beaches and great lovers and friends and all of the memories of all the things that made that moment scary, all the things you have to live for. And I strive to always find happiness and peace in that time, to know that I lived the best life that I could and was kind and generous to as many people as possible so that if it is the moment and when it is the moment, I'm okay with that, as okay as we can ever hope to be. I still do that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's just like, why I, I don't, I know some people like Dan Savage in particular says that he <laughs> prays on the plane when it's turbulent. And mm-hmm. then as soon as he gets off the plane, he's like an atheist to get like through and through and, you know, more power to him if that whatever, you know, gets people through the day. But um, mm-hmm. no, I, I'm just, I feel like I've been really lucky in life and, you know, getting to live at all, even if you had a great life is pretty lucky. So I, yeah, I try to reflect on the fullness of my life and that if this plane were to go down, that I would still have been, you know, lucky and have lived a, a good life. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your background. Where, where did you grow up and what kind of a religious environment did you grow up in? Yeah, I grew up uh, in North Carolina, uh, Southern Baptist, my, my extended family. I was lucky that my parents were not extremely religious, but they did enable <laughs> a good amount of indoctrination um, through my education and just familial relationships and obligations. So I went to Christian school until about third or fourth grade, mm-hmm. um, which is great, right? You really, what, what is that quote? You give a kid, you, you give someone a kid until they're like seven or eight and then like they're religious forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it is formative years, but yeah, I, I definitely grew up religious and I definitely believed it. I think that's kind of, there's this idea about atheists kind of always having been skeptical. And mm-hmm. I don't think that I fall into that category. I think there were, were times that I really, truly thought it was true. <laughs> um, and then adolescence and just seeing all, a lot of inconsistencies uh, kind of broke me out of it. Was it like um, a moment that you remember kind of not believing in it anymore? Or was it more of a gradual process? I think it was pretty gradual. I, I think that the moment that if I had to... Uh, pick one that it was just kind of a done done deal um was probably in in college um i was pretty sure about it before i went away but uh, i actually had a terrible uh, tragic incident with planes um my my cousin who i was most closest to i'm an only child so he was like my brother uh he was also a pilot and he died in a mid-air plane crash when i was 19 and he was 24 and that experience of if seeing everyone take this really religious path through it um, 
and thinking, you know, everything happens for a reason and, and you know, he's with God now and this is what, you know, God must have wanted to call him home early, et cetera, et cetera. Like that was just not, I wasn't having it. It's like, I don't want to live in a world. And I guess it's like, it doesn't matter what I want, but in that moment, it's like, do you want to believe, like I was clear, it was clear to me that I could choose to believe whatever I wanted. Um, and, it, and it was clear to me that I didn't want to live in a world that would have that happen on purpose and, and worship, you know, not just believe in, but worship a God that would have that as part of a plan was not something that I was willing to, to do or even entertain at that point. What did your parents think about your disbelief at that point? Um, my parents are actually pretty supportive of it. I, I mean, my dad's an academic and my mom um, is, a, is a brilliant nurse and like she has seen things too. My, my mom told me something really interesting about that whole experience for her, like raising me and wanting me to be religious. Um, she said that she wasn't particularly religious herself, but she viewed that as kind of a moral failing of hers. Mm -hmm. And she thought that there was something wrong with her that she wasn't more religious. So she wanted to give me that gift of faith that she thought that she was, you know, kind of lacking. Um, and I think both my, my dad will always call himself a Christian through some, you know, ob familial obligation, basically. Um, his mother passed away and made him promise that he would. So it's like, he's, he's, you know, <laughs> as much on the fence as anyone and as much a non-believer as anyone. And I don't think I've ever seen him in a church away from weddings and funerals, mm -hmm. but I think he just has to pay that lip service, you know, for those reasons. Um, but my mom is not a believer anymore and would, would say as much, I think. So she would actually admit to being a non-believer at this point. Yeah. Yeah. She would. Is part of that due to your role and your activism? Wholly my role, yeah. I think she would probably have said a Christian just out of default um, before. But I think, I mean, I talked to them frequently, and I talked to her even more than my dad. And she kind of went through it with me. Like, I was trying to work it out and try to understand these things. And I was asking her all these questions and contradictions. And I think having to listen to me do that <laughs> is enough to shake what little face she may have had out of her. So it's almost like you did it together. Yeah, I think that that would be that would be fair. And and she was really close to my cousin as well. And I think we kind of came to a, a mutual final decision after after that happened. So where did you go to school after you graduated from high school? I went to Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Go Tar Heels. Um, and I loved it. It was great. It, I mean, despite being in North Carolina, it's like a little haven of, of, of blue goodness. Like it's just super liberal, super open-minded. Uh, and the first place that I ever met other people who were atheists, like I, I didn't grow up with, with other people who were atheists. I grew up being taught that atheists were literally devil worshipers, which is, I still like laugh at that today. It's just, it's just absurd. It's like, you don't believe in God, therefore you must believe in the enemy of God and worship him. It's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but that's the kind of environment that I, I, you know, was raised in. And then I got to school and I met, you know, perfectly decent, good humans um, who, who were atheists and would say the word and, and live their lives in a way that I thought was morally upright, or at least as morally upright as any college student's life, you know. One of the people you met in college might be familiar to people, and that is you got to know Bart Ehrman when you were in college. Yeah, he's a really cool dude. I, I actually just audited his class after I graduated. I was I was working as a fundraiser. Um, so I was just like, yeah, I want to take it. So I took his New Testament class, and it was just like a show every week. Like, it was fantastic. 
Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed the way he structured the class. He had people, you had to debate, um, you know, canonical issues like, you know, about about what like Paul would want about like homosexuality and, you know, what the New Testament has to say about all these like issues. And you would have to debate in person one position, but you would have written about the other position. So he forced these, you know, predominantly Christian cl- classrooms to argue both sides of, of important theological issues. And I thought that was a really cool way of opening people's minds to the options that exist. <laughs> yeah, I think he's really, through his work, I mean, I only know him through his his books, really, but to be able to take issues that, that people don't really think about, uh, like the Bible and how the Bible's written and and what we know about Jesus, and just flip that around and make people think about things in ways they've never thought about them and look at the history of them. I mean, it's just incredible what his work has been able to do. Yeah, no, it really is. And and he he had these, like, I think it was like Tuesday afternoons or something. Like, he would basically hold office hours at a pub uh, with our ex- it was like a Mexican restaurant that had beer or something like that. <laughs> um, and and it would, it, that was really where I think we had the most interesting conversations. Um, but he would say, Things like this is so I would ask like how controversial are your your opinions basically like in the field and he would say not at all controversial <laughs> like these are very well understood and I don't think he's proposing anything that New Testament scholars disagree with I think that the, the difference with Bart is that he is making it publicly accessible he's he's making popular books about these ideas and these these debates and concepts that are just normal discussions for people who actually study this formally. You're right that the the academic field is very different from what you see in popular culture. Yeah, yep. Or at the pulpit. <laughs> and the funny thing is, a lot of these these you know preachers, pastors, what whoever they they actually know this stuff. They went to schools that you know teach it, and they they at some point decide that there's like a like a private narrative that acknowledges the uh, I guess. I don't know, like the, the the fact that the Bible isn't that cut and dry. They they acknowledge the nuance and the I guess subjectivity of a lot of it. But then mm-hmm. when they go to preach it, they change the narrative so that it is a bit more solid for the lay people. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a cynical take on it or or what. But yeah, it does strike me as interesting that these people were educated at similar places. What was your major in college? Psychology which I loved because I, I chose it because I decided there would never be a situation where I wouldn't need to get into my head or someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, this is going to be useful. <laughs> so what made you want to go from, you know, you're, you're majoring in psychology. What made you want to get involved then in the atheist movement? Yeah, gosh, I, I was very interested in it. I, I was no longer a believer. I, you know, I guess idealistically thought the best thing that I could do was to bring you know, atheism to as many people as possible, not spread the good word, but just allow people to acknowledge the reality that we live in. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, I had an opportunity to go up north. I actually had offers to work with either um, the SCA or American Atheist, and I wanted to go to New York more than Washington, D.C. So <laughs> I went there uh, and worked with them for a year, then at Ethical Culture. And then I moved to Scotland and did a master's, and now I'm a PhD student in Chicago. All over the so place. It's been quite a journey, yeah. 
What was what was the desire to get involved in the movement in the first place? I don't, I've always been like an activist. I was involved in Young Democrats and some other groups I, in, in college and high school. I think it was more, I think the, the, the harder thing wasn't why to get involved. It was kind of getting rid of all the reasons why I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the why, why do it was because I, I supported the, you know, and, and still do support the idea of, you know, equality for non-believers, and you know, I, I still don't believe in God, so it's like it made sense on that level. But I think trying to convince myself and my family that this was a good decision for me, just in terms of like the political implications of being an atheist activist, I think that was much harder than the the why do it, the why, yeah, getting over all the reasons why I shouldn't was more difficult. Now, you and I have talked about this before, about kind of what is the movement and what should it be? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's it's such a big question. And I, I, I think it should be asked and answered, you know, in an iterative way. Like, it's not going to be the same thing now as it would have been 50 years ago or 50 years hence. So mm-hmm. it's, it's important to always keep it in mind. But I think the movement, at least when I was more active in it a few years ago, I think it kind of suffered from this, like, identity crisis of how active to be involved with issues of like humanitarian import, like humanist issues or political issues, as opposed to sticking with like a very strict understanding of what an atheist centered movement should be. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was involved before gay marriage was legal. And that was kind of an issue. It's like, do we want to be adamantly supportive of that? Or is that going to, you know, make some people uncomfortable if they don't support it, or if they don't think that that's what the, the movement should be about? Um, and I think that's kind of the main conflict there. It's like, how active should we be in supporting trans issues? How active immigration issues at this point? It's like, mm-hmm. these are the, the major issues of our time. And the major issues of our time don't happen to be, you know, strictly doctrinal arguments about religion. Like, that's that's not what's affecting people on the day-to-day level. I guess a lot of the the reasons those are even issues at all is because of religion. Right, right. And that's certainly a, a good argument. I think I think I've kind of I mean I think religion is a a, a harm more damaging than than it is helpful uh, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that just taking religion out of the equation would fix a lot of things. Um, nor putting it in would fix a lot of things. Like I I I think that there are a lot of issues that kind of have like, oh, this is like PhD speak, but like hidden moderators and meet like the other things that are acting on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, just, just system hierarchies, just that alone will cause issues with, you know, white men on the top of a, a pyramid. Like that's going to be the case regardless of religion. There's, there's justification found in religion for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the, the situation itself of, structural hierarchies and of inequality, I don't think is fully captured within the question of God or not. And I think that's where the movement kind of has, that's where the tension is, right? It's like, should it be a God or not movement or a movement that acknowledges the religion plays a part, but is not the full story of inequalities. And you would be on kind of the latter side of that. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. And more and more all the time. I think I've kind of softened in my, perspective well there's still no god right so it's like right. I, I don't know if they're like softening is really a thing like it's still the god or not issue is is the same as it's always been or at least well you know in my adulthood mm-hmm. and I, I think the things that i've softened on are more like coalitions with 
religious people, how I uh, respond and <laughs> respect people who claim spirituality, uh, things that I don't really buy into, um, but wanting the bigger goal, like the bigger goals for me are, is not to deconvert everyone. The bigger goal for me is to make a society that is more egalitarian on the religious front and all the other fronts that we have to fight. So you mentioned that you've you've been kind of away from the movement because of your education and moving to another continent. Um, <laughs> so what was it? Where was the movement when you left? And what, what were the issues that were going on at that time? I think they're pretty similar. I mean, it's this, you know, um, when we were talking before, it's like, there were gender issues. I guess I kind of was involved when, you know, elevator gator, like that whole part of the, the movement, which I, I hear is still somewhat unresolved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that's where I mean, and, and like Muslim bashing, I think that like, that's a thing that I may have been more inclined to do earlier in my life and career uh, than I would do now. I think there are more people that are getting on board on the, the, this idea of like coalition building uh, across multiple spaces. I, I was involved in Sunday assembly and I think that, and, and ethical culture, like the combination of those similar ideologies uh, were helpful in kind of broadening the goal that I saw as possible and the kind of movement that I think would be the most helpful. Sunday assembly was really interesting. You know, it's not something typical that, that New Yorkers are accustomed to because New Yorkers don't really go to church as much right. as other parts of the country. And so it was, was it a difficult sell at first to get New Yorkers interested in something like Sunday Assembly? I, I, don't, I don't know if it was a difficult sell because the sell is community, right? So it's like, that's something that everyone wants to do. I think it, I mean, we had fluctuating membership and, and like attendance, but I mean, we typically got like 50 to 100 people in the room, mm-hmm. you know, every month, which is solid. Um, I think it's just... The harder sell was get kind of like keeping the momentum going, uh, keeping you know new and interesting speakers, themes, topics, and keeping the different varying factions of what a Sunday assembly should be and whether they should, you know, whether it should take a, a hardline uh, kind of firebrandy atheist perspective or a more open-minded uh, non-believer and other perspective. And I think we kind of ended up, after much debate, um, going with the, the latter option. And I think that fit within the ethical culture space and the, you know, overall feel of what, you know, um, Sanderson, the founder of, of Sunday Assembly, most wanted. But I think a lot of it was, it was a harder sell to keep it moving than to um, initiate it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting to me how different groups like Sunday Assembly or Oasis, uh, how they do in different parts of the country. Because some parts, you know, Kansas City, for example, is a huge Oasis group. They get like 200 people who show up every week. Wow. And uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons is because the, you know, Kansas City is a very religious place. Right. Um, and so I think one of the reasons it was a bit of more of a struggle in New York is we don't have that culture of church going. You know, people are just right. going to drunk brunch on Sundays. They're hanging right. out with their friends. We don't have that same religious culture. People don't ask, what church do you go to here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I think it satisfies more than like, I think it, it does satisfy like a need for belonging, like that kind of impulse. And mm-hmm. I think that impulse 
even if it's not driven by religion explicitly in New York, is still there. Like, it's still very hard to find, like, friends and, like, a good community in New York because everyone's just kind of on their grind. And I think that was for different reasons, like, than a Kansas City where I imagine they probably do have um, more communal atmosphere just in general because it's, you know, small towns or or small cities have more Mm -hmm. uh, communal situations in, in the South or Midwest, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that part of it, like maybe they, they succeed for different reasons, but I think the active <laughs> disdain that, um, you know, someone in Kansas city probably has for religion being everywhere would probably drive them in the doors more than New York. I agree with that for sure. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not as big of an issue. Nobody really talks about it much here. Right, right. But you still, it's like, but do you want cool people who you know aren't going to shove God down your throat? Well, come on by. Yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different different sell. And you mentioned that you moved to Scotland. What what took you to Scotland? What took you to Edinburgh? Love. <laughs> I, I followed a, a, a girl there, basically. Um, we met in New York, and she is an academic as well. Uh, she's a, a professor at Edinburgh and was doing a, I think a fellowship or postdoc situation at, at Harvard and was down visiting a friend from Boston one weekend when we met. And so we did like the back and forth thing to Boston and then her um, fellowship ended and she had to move back and I had to get my ducks in a row so I could follow her. So I guess within six or eight months of meeting, um, and I think you met Zoe, but w- mm-hmm. within... A, a very short time of us meeting, uh, I was like basically putting in my notice and um, yeah, moving to to Scotland without a, a real clear plan of what I was going to do after that. Uh, I think it's like a six month visa <laughs> ran out for tourists. What was what was the cultural experience like? Was it it was it a, a culture shock living over there? Oh, it was really pleasant. I really, I mean, I don't, I, I loved Edinburgh. I. I I would have to really strain to to find something bad to say about it. It's got a mountain and a castle. Like that's pretty clutch for a city. <laughs> it's such an amazing city, and uh, I, I I hope everybody can visit it at some point because it's it's not on the top of people's lists. No, but it's people, like a hidden gym. It is, but pe- everybody I know who's been there like loves it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's like my, my favorite city," except nobody talks about it. So right. Well, London kind of steals the thunder, I guess, for the you know the British Isles, but mm-hmm. it's fantastic. And I would say like the whole the whole country is like go to the Highlands, mm. West Highland Way, go to Sky, like just amazing, amazing scenery and and views. It's, I mean, it's a little rainy and a little chilly all the time, but mm-hmm. Once you get over that, it's perfectly awesome. Like I would, I would move back in a heartbeat. I ended up getting a master's there in basically applied psychology. It's cognition and science and society, and that was both like something I I enjoyed and wanted to do, and also a good pretense to stay in the country. Um, <laughs> so that was that was good. That and I I ended up spending two years there and loved it. I mean the cultural experience was a bit different. No one really is very religious. So it didn't really come up very much at all. I think that's, I mean, what the stats kind of indicate when you look at levels of religiosity in the United States versus in the UK or, or in other places in Europe. Um, I, I loved it. And I think that the racism is a bit different there too, which is, was interesting. So they have more of like a anti-immigrant bent um, Mm -hmm. than a like, black people are bad like black people might be bad if they're not american black people so it's more like this like 
African black hatred or disdain. And like, you know, they hate Polish people for reasons I, I can't articulate. Um, cause I'm not, not because I won't say them because I just don't understand it. Uh-huh. Um, so it's like, yeah, they're, they're more anti-immigrant, but when they meet an American black person, it's more of like, a like a res- fairly respectful curiosity. Like I don't, I don't, I, I didn't sense the same, like they don't have the rampant stereotypes taught to them from a young age about what black people from the States are like. So I, I didn't really pick up on um, a lot of that, which was pleasant, mm-hmm. nice, a good break. <laughs> uh, were you over there during Brexit? Oh yeah. Yeah, I was, that was incredible. So I, I really lucked out in 2016. I was, uh, I was in the UK <laughs> When Brexit happened and I um, got accepted to uh, this PhD program, ended up moving. So Brexit was like, I think in June. And then I moved in September, just in time for the run up to Donald Trump's, you know, election. Uh, And everyone was so cocky, right? They were just like, no, Hillary's got it. Hillary's got it. And Mm -hmm. I had just seen a similar dynamic play out in the UK. So I felt a little like, I don't know if there are any like classicists in the audience, but a little bit like Cassandra in like the Odyssey. So she's like, don't let the horse in. It's got Greeks in it. I'm like, don't get complacent. <laughs> they will elect Trump. Like, don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't sleep on this. It's like you're doomed to be right and have no one believe you. Like that's mm-hmm. a pretty frustrating uh, experience. But yeah, and then it happened and it was awful. And, uh, and here we are still somehow alive a year later. I voted in New York and then I was flying to London that night. So I voted and then I went straight to the airport and I I remember posting on Facebook something like, you know, I voted and now I'm fleeing the country. Ha ha. (laughs) You know, thinking like, oh, this is going to be fine. Like, and I'm like, flying over the Atlantic as the, the votes are coming in and like looking at ho- in horror at what's oh, going you were, on. Like online. Like, yeah. You, yeah. And it was just, it was just horrific to seeing, you know, that, that, that he was winning and yeah, oh, no. no, it was, it was an awful night. I mean, I, I can only remember so much of it given the um, l- amount of liquor that I had to ply myself with to get through it. <laughs> but <laughs> I remember walking home at like 4.30 in the morning from my friend's house where I watched it and just like in tears. Like it's just like could have easy target. Like could have just easily been mugged but gave no <laughs> gave no fucks about it. Like, I was just like, no, I'm just going to cry. I hope that's okay to everyone. Uh, and I don't really care if it's not. Like, I think I was like audibly crying. Like I don't even think it was like a cute just like tears screaming like streaming i think it was like a good hearty cry just walk, walking down the street at 4 30 in the morning <laughs> sure everybody felt the same way as you did totally. especially in chicago oh yeah i think i oh yeah like i uh, in the south you'd say like i took to the bed the next day like i didn't leave the hat like i was <laughs> luckily a phd student didn't have classes that day but like was not a functional human for at least good 48 72 hours Although just imagine, like, you know, if you were to go back to the 80s and be like, just a heads up, in 30 years, like, Donald Trump is going to be president and Bill Cosby is going to be on trial for sexual assault. Like, people would be like, you're you're out of your mind. Yeah. You would be committed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just imagine now, like, what, 30 years in the future? Like, we have no idea what it's going to be like. That's such a great point. I'm reading this book. It's called, uh, But What If We're Wrong?, Mm-hmm. And it's essentially thinking like thinking about the future as if it were the past. And like it, it talks about that. It's like basically what are the weird things that we think we're so sure about now that are going to be 
not good later or like not correct or not viewed the same way, mm-hmm. especially these social, like social cultural issues. Right. Like what terrible things are we saying now? Like I think about that, like what, what thing am I saying now that my grandkids are going to like cringe at? You know what I think is going to be a big one? I think it's going to be eating meat. Oh, like factory farm, all that stuff. I think people are going to look at us like we were like slaveholders. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Mm. And like environmental, like just massacres, like just like the, the implications and the fact that they're going to have to clean it up. No, that's a good one. I think the eating meat, especially once we get viable other options yeah, such that people won't even have to really engage with the fact that we didn't have, you know, once, once everything is good, they're going to be like, why would they even do, why didn't they just use soylent or whatever? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so weird. I, yeah. Those, those, those are going to be big ones. I think my, my favorite example that they gave in the book, which mm-hmm. I think is really, it's a, it was the matrix. So they talked about the matrix and how at the time the matrix had really good special, like what it was known for at the time but it was really good special effects and, and like an interesting philosophical bit. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the future, like no one's going to care about the special effects. You know what I mean? Like that it was innovative at the time isn't going to matter because we've gone so much further now. And the philosophical thing has been adopted by lots of other movies. Like it's not that novel in this at this point. But what is going to be interesting or what people might study about it is that the brothers, the Wachowskis. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about like these, these two brothers at the time is that they've transitioned. Now they're women. So, mm-hmm. Like that will possibly be the interesting thing. Like studying this, like this movie about two realities that was actually directed by trans women. Like that's th- that then transitioned after the the movie. Like that's a cool and interesting thing. Like that has lends itself to lots of potential avenues and linking the philosophy with the you know the transition and how people viewed transsexuals at the time. Yeah, it's interesting through art. People kind of read in a lot that yeah. wasn't even known necessarily at the time. Totally. Yeah, they give they give that that's like a whole a whole chapter. Like Moby Dick wasn't popular when it came out. Mm-hmm. But over time different, you know, it became to be like an allegory for other things and like got adopted widely based on like that basically. Yeah, it reminds me of the the, the great film from the 1950s, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, so many people will tell you that the film is an allegory for the spread of communism. And huh. that, that it was all about about communism, and there was this interview with Kevin McCarthy, who was who was uh, the lead actor in the film, and they asked him before he passed away, like, so was this film about uh, McCarthyism and all this stuff and 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 the Red Scare? And he was like, no, no, it wasn't. It was about aliens. Like that's what it was about. But all these people read into that's it. What it was about, yeah, yeah. And so you know, you can look at it now and absolutely see that there were those kind of. That's undercurrent, but at the time they didn't. It wasn't conscious for them that they were making a film about that, right? But that's what everyone imbues it with. Looking back at it, mm-hmm. because of the cultural moment that was experienced, I guess after. That's wild, yeah, and and hard to really pin down too. It's like you you just don't know what those things are, and you mm-hmm. can't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I do wonder what terrible things I like say or do that, like you know will just not be okay later. So are you ultimately optimistic about what's going on and, and the fact that, that Trump is causing us to not take things for granted as much and maybe be more active politically speaking, or are you, or are you worried about the future? 
Oh gosh, it's definitely a solid both. Uh, <laughs> I'm always <laughs> optimistic. It's a, I guess, a gift and a curse. Like I'm, I'm pretty generally positive as a person. So I, I, I don't want that to be taken away from me by Trump, and it's, I mean, I'm not going to let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, however, holy shit! Like it's just like you look at the news every day, and you're just like, what is going on? And luckily, I guess the economy has been. I would say artificially inflated as of late. So that's been good, but I don't know how long I, yeah, I don't know how long we keep the ship afloat without major intervention, but I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic. I think people have become, I mean, you, you can look and see how many people are running, you know, the democratic side and how many women are running and how many, you know, women of color are running. Like it's clear that, this has had at least a positive impact insofar as uh, political engagement. I mean, the Women's March, right? The, the largest demonstration that we've ever had as a country. Like, that's pretty impressive mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how much people don't like him. Uh, right. Yeah, so right. I guess, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I do remain optimistic, but also not complacent. Like, I do, I do think we do need to do things to make it better. I don't think it'll just become better automatically. There's a lot of work to do, but I'm glad that people are, are stepping up and, and doing that work. Yeah. Heartily encourage everyone to vote in these midterm elections that are upcoming. So you've been in school for a while. You were in school when you were in Scotland, and now you're in school again in Chicago. I've what been in you... school roughly forever. For... Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's how it feels. And I have yet forever to go, it seems. But What are you studying right now? Um, I'm actually in business school. I'm studying management and organizations. And the best way of thinking about that is uh, business psychology. <laughs> Just a continuation of, of that mm-hmm. that bent. Um, but I like it. I study pro-social behavior, uh, donation patterns, um, as well as like the other side. So fraud. I'm working on a case on with Wells Fargo now. Yeah. So it's like the good, the very, very good and the very, very bad of, of business. <laughs> How do you want to apply those in the future? I think I would like to apply it ideally, you know, in, in some capacity back to the atheist movement if and when that opportunity presents itself. I think a lot of why I went back to school, and this is as much at you know, UNC as, you know, American Atheists or other organizations that I worked in. It's like, you don't really get taken seriously, especially as a black woman, especially as a young black woman. Um, Even if you have great ideas, if you don't have the credentials behind your name. And I, I don't think I took that seriously when I was younger. I think I just thought, you know, I'll just have good ideas and that'll be enough. (laughs) And it's not, unfortunately. So now that I have well, we'll have two masters and a PhD as well as an undergrad degree, hopefully. <laughs> and it, it probably by itself will still not be enough. But the combination of good ideas, good credentials, good, you know, university names, uh, ideally that will, you know, be enough to affect positive change. Did you experience a lot of racism in the atheist community? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely a thing. Uh, but it's it's not a thing because there's something inherently wrong with atheists or the atheist community. I think it's a thing within communities. And I think it's a thing within communities, especially that are typically like white male led or dominated. And for a lot of reasons, that's the case with the atheist movement. I think, yeah, structural and and interpersonal reasons. A lot of people of color um, in their communities are not really very accepting of, you know, religious non-belief. So it makes it harder to get those people in the door. And then when they get in the door, it makes it difficult to keep them when there are the same kind of structural and 
uh, intergroup boundaries in place. Like there's, there's nothing about being an atheist that would make you less discriminatory. Like mm-hmm. people assume that that would be the case and there's really no, no reason. I mean, you won't have the backup of religious justifications, but we're all, you know, swimming in this white supremacist swamp. Like we're all in it and mm-hmm. we're all affected by it. And I don't think there's any reason to think that wouldn't be the case. And in my experience, uh, has shown me that it's not the case that the atheist movement is somehow, um, better or beyond those issues. What do you think we can do to move further past that? Yeah. I mean, I think we, have, again, I, I, would encourage us to think of the atheist movement as no different from it's like the same things that we have to do as a society. We have to acknowledge it, call it out. I, I really shy away from accepting of people who say like, I don't see race or like the colorblindness stuff is really tired mm-hmm. and not true and not helpful. I think we should definitely take on a more like multicultural, like difference is good and worth pursuing. It's its own benefit. It's also very helpful because it gives you perspective on different communities and different ways of not putting one's foot in their mouth. If you ask around mm-hmm. um, people from different backgrounds, what kind of uh, approaches might be helpful, you'll get more information and better information than if you just ask one demographic about how to appeal to the masses. Like That's obviously not going to be as effective as having lots of different viewpoints. So I, I think, yeah, calling it out, acknowledging it, calling it out when you see it, trying to be self-reflexive. I think the the best people that I've had conversations about race with, the best, I guess, you know, conversations are different in black communities, but the best like white people that I've had conversations with are the kinds of white people who are like, I acknowledge that I am prejudiced. I am trying to work on it. I know that we all are. I don't think I'm any worse than anyone else, uh, but I acknowledge that, you know, these this is the culture that I'm in and I'm trying to, you know, push past it as opposed to not acknowledging it at all. What do you think now that you've had this, you've had this break in between kind of being involved in the atheist movement, taking a break to go to school and then come back to it a bit later on? What are you hoping to use from your education to further the movement uh, in a couple of years down the road? I mean, money is going to be great to have one day. What's that? that? that would be, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> money. Yeah. Um, so hopefully when I'm gainfully employed uh, as a professor at a business school, that will allow me to be pretty, um, yeah, able to, able to donate, which I think is very important as a former fundraiser. So I, mm-hmm. I will be able to pay it, you know give money to the organizations that are doing the kinds of work that I, I want to see. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing about my perspective that is different. Like in terms of, if anything, I have more to say and have seen more things. So, you know, I was a speaker and doing, you know, kinds of circuits and, and conferences and things like that in the past. I'm sure that a Dr. AJ Johnson will be equally compelling, if not <laughs> more so on mm-hmm. those similar circuits. So I, I imagine that, you know, if people wanted to hear from me, that I would be willing to talk to them. On a personal level, do you have any goals or aspirations coming up that you'd like to to fulfill in the next couple of years? Oh gosh, I wish you had said the next like five, then I could say this program. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean it's really it's amazing how kind of like head in the sand you have to be to get through a PhD program. Like it really does become kind of all-consuming, um, unfortunately. Uh, so I think that, you know, getting published, like doing the things that are required in this realm are, are my goals. Like, I think I, it's hard to, to think past and through those things that I have to do. 
um, to be more like optimistic about, I mean, I guess, Oh, so I'm no longer with that, that amazing woman, uh, shouts to Zoe. Uh, we, we broke up when I, when I moved back. Uh, so finding a good relationship, like that would be great. Getting married, getting mm-hmm. pets or children, uh, more pets probably <laughs> on the near term. <laughs> but yeah, like the, those kinds of, um, interpersonal goals, I guess are, are still in play. I recently got a new passport in the last year after I filled up my last one, which is like, probably like one of the things I would grab in a fire, you know, like it means that much to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I would definitely love to, to travel. I'm probably going to go to Germany later this, this year. Um, I have some friends running a marathon there, so I'll probably do that. I saw Hamilton last week. That was awesome. Yeah. I think travel would be, would be great. It's, it, again, it's like this PhD program is so, uh, yeah, all in com- it'll probably have to be for a conference mm-hmm. <laughs> for the, the PhD if I, if I do get away more often. And I do miss that, especially of being in, in, in the UK. You could just like cheap flights to France and Italy. And yeah, it was awesome. And not praying when there are turbulence. <laughs> exactly. Because there will be turbulence. There will <laughs> always be, like be turbulence. T-shirt. There will be turbulence, yeah. <laughs> AJ, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.